I will talk to you of art. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. Well, you can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some artists will bait a hook and let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado... Albert Shivers. This is another episode of Planet Shivers. We're going to, to use a Bob Weir expression, is that we're going to go in the Wayback Machine um, with my buddy David Carino, who friends by awkwardly being paired together in math class. So thanks so much for doing this show, Dave. Yeah, not a problem, Albert. Thanks for uh, you know having me in consideration for it. So 13 going on 14 years. Yeah. friends yeah one of my oldest and most dearest friends from from high school so our introduction with each other yeah yeah we were in mr ball's math class yeah and i don't know if you remember but uh the math class was um all the kids in our grade that weren't quite good at math yeah and the kids in the grade above us who weren't quite good at math or retaking the math class we were in and yeah. it wasn't remedial but what, what was it, like introduction to algebra is like a very rudimentary math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we were filling out checks. Like super math. Like, like how are you? Like, yeah, kind of blew me away that there was like a group of kids in the grade above us that were <laughs> redoing consumer <laughs> math. Yeah, you, um, you, that's a class you have to try. Like, it takes effort to fail it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we're filling out checks, making budgets. <laughs> All, like, useful information. Yeah. It's good, but, like... Basic math. Yeah. You shouldn't fail it. <laughs> yeah, third grader could have done Did it. you have consumer math, too? No, thank God I didn't. Because that was... That was just... <laughs> it was mind-numbing. Yeah. Because, like, what are you going to do? Like, what else are you going to do? Remember Mr. Ball and how dry and bland and how just northeast Pennsylvania... He, yes. He, he wore was. sweaters with deer on them. That's <laughs> yeah. northeast Pennsylvania. Great guy. You know, really <laughs> oh, yeah. friendly. But, you know, of course you have to say that after you burn someone. Like, yeah, you know, super bland, but he was a gentleman. I remember, so, like, because my sisters literally, they were friends with the balls. Okay. And I remember one day, like, you came over to hang out with me, and Mr. Ball was over my parents' house. It was the weirdest thing. Oh, uh, that's like, funny. It was just worlds colliding. Yeah, and, yeah, I believe he was the... the like the JV girls tennis coach. Yeah. And he didn't coach <laughs> soccer too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the <laughs> this whole thing just gonna be about Mr. Ball. <laughs> yeah, right. So the so the day when we were we were forced to work together. To work together. So I believe there's like maybe 22, 24 kids in the class. We sat like right I was yeah, right yeah. ahead of you and you were right behind me. Yeah, exactly. Um and we had to do um he hand out some worksheets and he's like, all right, everyone like, you know, choose a partner, you know, like I want everyone to have someone they're doing this with and, you know, like go through the worksheets at the end of class, turn them in. And there was an even amount of students. Mm -hmm. So you had to, you couldn't just be the odd person like, right. oh, I'm just going to go, go, go it alone. Like you and I would have preferred to have done. Mm -hmm. And so everyone gets together. Everyone puts their desks, you know, next to each other. And you got Albert in front of me. I'm behind him. And we're both looking down, doing our work, knowing that the other one doesn't have a partner. And we're just praying that our teacher, Mr. Ball, isn't going to force us to work together. And sure enough, he gets up from his desk. <laughs> He's walking down the aisle to us. And like we both kind of look like, up. Uh, and like, uh, no. Both look down. And he's like, oh, Albert. You know, and it's like, hey, David. Like, you know, um, neither one of you have partners. So uh, how about you? How about you guys work together? And there's a, an indifferent gasp they can hear yeah. from both of us. Like, oh, all right. Sir Albert, you know, pulls his desk back. I slug mine forward. 
We're just hanging out, arms crossed. Yeah. You know, like, you know, kind of scoping each other out. And I believe you're wearing uh, a black Jimi Hendrix shirt where it has his face. You gave it to me last time you hung out is this shirt, black shirt with like a, a white outline of Jimi Hendrix's face on the entirety of the shirt. Do you remember that shirt? I do remember that shirt. And I, th- I think you I, were wearing it that day. No. You weren't? You actually remember no, what you were wearing? I do remember what okay, I was wearing. Okay, what was it? It was a brown Bob Dylan shirt that I got ah. from a show I seen him at. Okay. And All right. you were into Dylan. Yeah. So you like you made like a nice comment about the shirt or asked me like you're into Dylan or are you into Dylan? And yeah. like that was and that was basically that was the moment. I was like, Yeah, I am and then <laughs> it's like we found this common ground that just worked. Yeah, it's like, all right, you're into Dylan, yeah, I'm into Dylan. I was like, Oh, you like Hendrix? Yeah, I like Hendrix, oh yeah. Beatles, yeah. So we had like the 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 common musical ground. Yeah. I was like, Oh, you like the dead? It's like, uh, not really. It's like, oh you like Zappa? I was like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, heard of Zappa. That's about it. So, um, you know, we're doing doing the math problems, the consumer and that math was problems. Really, it was like I was at my like just about to be on like my Zappa peak. <laughs> Alright, good to know that. Yeah. But um yeah, that moment, <clears throat> you know, the the little seedling of friendship had been planted. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what <clears throat> really made it grow was <clears throat> you know, we're talking play guitar i play drums i was like hey you know we should play music and uh lo and behold albert came over one day um in the room that we're sitting right now um before it was totally finished it was just um, a framed room in the upstairs of our house um no paint no drywall nothing just windows and some a little bit of electricity I had my mm-hmm. drum set up there and yeah you came over with your guitar <clears throat> played a railroad boy by Woody Guthrie, but the Dylan version, as you reminded me earlier. I believe we played Tangled Up in Blue. We did. Classic. We played <clears throat> a few songs off John Wesley Harding. Yeah. And um, that was yeah, it was the first repertoire. And I think later, like, we got together early. And then later on that day, other people came over and, and joined Oh, yeah, us. yeah. Justin. <laughs> Justin, both Justins. Yeah, Justin Moran came over with his electric and Justin Soison came over and we had like a full band we can jam with. Right. And that only, you know, that didn't last too long. It didn't. But like, so that had blown my mind that day, though. So I never played with like that many people. Okay. At once before that. And like. I was like on cloud nine. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> There's drums and a bass. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> and it, from what I remember, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, no, it sounded good. But yeah, I, I feel like pretty consistently on the weekends, you'd come over on a Friday yeah. or a Saturday. Yeah. And we would just jam for you know a couple hours, eat dinner, hang out, listen to music. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was like the, the bond. Yep. That, yeah. Then we started you know going to shows together. Yeah, yeah. Further was, well, no. First we saw we seen some dead like yeah, it was the dead Warren and Haynes. Oh, yeah, yeah, with Warren Haynes. Wow, they only did a couple tours with Warren Haynes, and like the o the o nine one was like their summer tour that yeah. they did before before what was it before Further became a thing. Yeah, yeah, that was fun because you know we're we're old enough to really love and appreciate the music, but we weren't too old where you know because a lot of people are like especially in the the jam scene especially the grateful dead are very vocal with the the likes and dislikes Mm -hmm. and there's definitely people that weren't on board with warren haynes playing with the dead at that time right same with people that you know think it's a joke that john mayer is playing with dead and company but the fact is you know we were there and like we got to see dead yeah. music with four remaining members of the dead and that was just that was yeah. the greatest thing ever like oh and my god like we get to see this like it was the show we went to was 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 with um bram from marsalis was there too yeah that was at a left field yeah he comes on the second song in the first set and yeah i played with him the whole show i was like, oh, like yeah it was incredible yeah and they don't really do sit-ins that often so just no. the fact that Bread from us all. This is like in the area. Yeah, and we experienced a few sit-ins in all those shows, like over the years. Yeah, yeah, but nothing like quite to to that magnitude. No, no, that one, that one was pretty awesome. Yeah, because I remember, 
um, the birthday show we went to at Best Buy in New York yeah. City in 2011. Warren Haynes actually sat in for the entirety of the second set because mm-hmm. that was in March, and the Almond Brothers used to do um, like the two week residency at the Beacon Theater every March, right? And that was like an, an off night because they would do like two nights off night, three nights That's in it. a row have an off night, and yeah, that night the Almond Brothers weren't playing, so Warren Haynes came out and did the the entirety of the second set. That was, that was really cool. Mm. Um, yeah. So just getting to travel around and see music, especially Grateful Dead music, you know, it's like very great way to, to build a friendship. It's, 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 that whole thing was like its own universe. And I tell people who either aren't into the dead or just don't know much about it. Like, if not for those guys. So now it was further by the time I was into it with you really heavy. Yeah. Those guys got me to see the country. Yeah. Like that, like they did, that was like this gift <laughs> that I wasn't even like expecting, but it happened. Like I've yeah. been to all, been to Maine, been to Frisco. All yeah. Places. Yeah. All the places in between too. Yeah. Just like getting there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, to me, that was, like, the initial... Because, you know, like, we had always loved it for the music. Mm-hmm. And people go to the shows for all sorts of reasons, especially when you get, like, a crowd of 20,000 people. All sorts of people go to concerts for a lot of different reasons. But there's definitely the, the core group of people that go there for the music, and that was mm-hmm. the initial... The initial love was, like, man, this is, like, timeless, incredible, and the fact that, like, we get to see it witnessed by the guys that were there but what also made it so so magical was you know hopping in a car and driving you know 10 hours you know to go up to maine and then you know shows in between and yeah just getting to see parts of the country that you would never think to go to right and yeah that was yeah that was probably one of the best parts and yeah just the, the overall experience and really just being there and just like enjoying it for what it is and not being too, too, um, oh, what's the word? Just like too critical of, yeah of the music, of the players, you know, just like enjoying it. Yeah. Just the whole scene, you know, it was hard. It was hard like to not find something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whether it was, you know, most of the time it was the music, but, um, other times it was just like people watching. Yeah, exactly. Now, like, it's endless. (laughs) Endless. Yeah. And it's great, too, because I feel like Further came around at a really good time because they toured for, like, I think five or six years, and that really opened up the dead music to a whole generation of younger fans that maybe weren't quite old enough to see, like, the dead with Warren Haynes, certainly weren't old enough to see any shows with Jerry. Right. So it's kind of like the mystique and the lore of, like... Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. you know, the godfathers of the jam band music scene. Right. And members that are still alive doing it. So that was, <clears throat> you know, we got a little taste, a little taste of the nectar of like, of being able to see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like, there were, when you get into the, into the, the, the culture of it, every musician, like, is it's their own character. Yeah. And who has their favorites and who, you know, what side of the stage you're going to stand on. <laughs> you know, Bob's side or Phil's side. Yeah, yeah. You know, this whole thing. <laughs> the Phil zone. <laughs> which was just like, that only added to it. Yeah. You know, because with every one of those levels, it became more than just like a concert. Yeah, you know, definitely. Where, just, where you're sitting here enjoying the music, but it, it, it was immersive. Further was very immersive. Yeah. And two, um, it opened up a whole new tr- treasure trove of musicians. Like, I had no idea who Joe Russo was. Mm-hmm. Turns out he's one of the best drummers alive currently. Like, yeah, like what he's doing on the drums is far beyond like what a lot of musicians have done like within the jam band scene as far as like breaking down barriers and just being able to like kind of like reinvent the instrument. John Katalichek, never heard of him. Never he really. He's the keyboardist. Right? No, no, he's um, a guitar oh, player. Okay, okay. Yeah, Jeff Kameni was uh, was the keyboard player. 
And it was just cool to see them like kind of rise and like kind of get their moment to shine within that music. And then mm-hmm. once further ended, you know, Joe Russo did, Joe Russo's almost dead. John Kadlicek, um, his solo career, you know, he's doing his things so like, but he definitely gained a lot more notoriety because right, he was in Dark Star Orchestra before that. And then Jeff Kameni's just been Bob Weir's right hand man on the keys since mm-hmm. the inception of Rat Dog, I believe in 96 or 97. So he's just been along for the ride as like every reincarnation of the Grateful Dead is their keyboarder. Right. And man, that he can play. <laughs> yeah. I love his style is like, you know, black cutoff jean shorts, black t-shirt, black high top converse, just doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Something else. <laughs> yeah. And he was always, like, I watched him a lot at shows because he was always usually on the Bob side. Mm-hmm. So I was usually on the pop side, <laughs> so I'd see him and I, you know, see you know, both of them back then. Would always watch them like, yeah, I got really into like just watching them play, you know. Yeah, because it's intricate, you know, like yeah. yeah. Bob Weir is all over the neck of that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting too because um, yeah, Bob Weir, um, I believe one of his biggest influences was uh, McCoy Tyner. Okay. You know, who's like, you know, legendary jazz piano player. Yeah. So it's just kind of cool to see, um, like, the jazz influence, a piano player influencing a rock guitarist, you right. know, just on, like, the way he, you know, um, just, like, chords and versions of that. And, like, even, like, playing rhythm <clears throat> right. on his guitar was, like, you know, huge influence from the way McCoy Tyner played, so... It's kind of cool to see just like the the jazz influence within within the Grateful Dead, and yeah, that's something I wanted to talk about. It's just like the um, the influence of like jazz and blues in early rock and roll from like the '60s <clears throat> through the '70s, and kind of where it's mm-hmm. ended up today, as far as like what music is today, because. You know, if you think of like a lot of the rock bands from the 60s, um, I think about the drummers like John Densmore from The Doors and uh, Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix Experience. They were, if you listen to their playing, like big on jazz. Like, oh, yeah. Major influences were the, the big jazz players of the time. And it's, it's cool to see how um, jazz music was like bridging the gap with blues to help create, you know, because rock and roll had been around. Mm-hmm. Um, like Buddy Holly and you know Chuck Berry and all this and all that, but it's like you know like it had been around, but like once, once the jazz era from the '60s, which was kind of like starting to like morph into like a more of a rock influence, it's kind of cool to see like the the two melding together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like Mickey Hart and Billy Kreutzmann of the Dead, they met at a Count Basie show in like 1968. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So like that's how the, <clears throat> so he had met Mickey, I think through Billy had met Mickey, like I think through, um, through like a friend or whatever. And then like Mickey, like went down to the show and like, you know, like, you know, they chummed up cause they're drummers and Mickey came from like a very heavily like, like jazz influence and, um, Billy Kreutzman is more just like soul and R and B, but you know, the common ground Count Basie. Yeah. And then, yeah, from there, you know, befriended Billy and then became part of the dead. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's cool to think, like, even back then, people were, like, meeting through music and just, you know, seeing what happens. I think, like, with jazz and rock of the 60s, I feel like they started together back in the 40s when rock first started to become a thing and it branched off of jazz and blues and then the 60s it met back up again yeah like they went there they did their own thing for a decade <laughs> and then they came back yeah um because yeah like as you know like one of my all-time favorite artists a lot of people's all-time favorite artists on uh, miles davis mm-hmm. to me i i feel like he definitely helped was a, a jazz artist who's kind of embracing rock and roll a lot more than yeah. other artists from his day because he he was very much like very prophetic in his in his music mm. um 
And if you look at like the the movement of his music from the sixties, um, that was with like you know what was considered like his second, his like second great quintet with um, it was um Tony Williams on drums. He was a young kid, like I think he was nineteen when he joined Miles Davis's band. Ron Carter on bass, um, Herbie Hancock on piano, acoustic piano, and then um, Wayne Shorter on tenor saxophone, and that was considered Miles Davis's like last fully acoustic album, mm-hmm. um, you know, without like electric bass or like um, electric keyboards or anything. Right. And if you listen to it, you can definitely hear like the the rock and roll influence of like. 66 and 67 like slowly seeping into mm-hmm. it but it's like very much jazz but it has like a bit of a more like a little more of an edge than like previous albums and even more of right. an edge than like what was being released at the time um and yeah that band he was playing with incredible musicians yeah He's so young too and it's like man when you listen to like herbie hancock absolute legend you know wayne shorter all those guys like very influential 60s 70s and mm-hmm. beyond and herbie hancock played with miles through most of that evolution yeah yeah like, he stuck with him yeah yeah bitches brew and stuff yeah exactly man bitches brew so the first time so my first introduction to miles davis and then anyone like that like dave holland who played bass chick korea herbie hancock um i believe tony williams was on that album my that was like my introduction to all that because mm-hmm. I had known about jazz, and um, I had one jazz album which was uh, Coltrane's. Um, what did the cover look like? It was just a photo of, of Coltrane playing saxophone. I believe the album was like from sixty five or sixty six. Um, was my favorite things on it? No. Oh, okay. um, I'm old fashioned was on it, and I think um, ah, I man, I forget the name of it. I just I just remember Philly Joe Jones was the drummer on okay. that on this particular album that I'm thinking of. But that like that was my introduction, like very good jazz, but like nothing like Bitches Brew, right? And <clears throat> my brother for my 16th birthday, he was like, "Hey, you should ask mom and dad to get you the Bitches Brew CD." And I was 16, well, 15 at the time, impressionable. I'm like, well, Bitches Brew sounds cool. Like, yeah, why not? Like, whatever. Asked for it. My parents actually got it for me. And the artwork is just something to behold. At that age, too, it's like, oh, my God. Like, what is this? You know, it's a two-disc CD. I put it in the CD player. And then I can't recall what the opening track is, but... It's like, you know, so many musicians and it's so loud. Just, you know, your sensors are, are being assaulted. Like two drummers, yeah, two like, keyboard players. There were a lot of times in that period that Miles would just like, a song would just be like, it almost sounds like you miss something. Yeah. Like his songs <laughs> would just like be silenced and just... <laughs> yeah. It's like, did this CD skip or something? Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then... A lot of the times, too, it's like you want Miles won't even come in until like four or five minutes into the track. Right. So it's like the band is just jamming, and then he shows up. He's like, "Oh, cool, <laughs> we're jamming." You know, let me let me plug in. But yeah, just like two drummers, two percussionists, two keyboards going at once. Dave Holland, who played electric bass, who was with Miles through his psychedelic period, then yeah, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock is just just so much going on. And it blew me away because I never heard music like that before. And Mm -hmm. to me, like, it seems like that was like the leap from, from straight ahead jazz music to like embracing rock and roll then having like a lot of funk elements. And then like the main thing, like improvisation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Cause that album was groundbreaking. And then, you know, um, I believe Tribute to Jack Johnson was after that one, which was more stripped down. I think there's only like four or five musicians on that one with John McLaughlin on guitar. And then after that is uh, On the Corner. Remember that yeah. album? And that's where, like, I liked Bitches Brew, but that's where, like, my interest was really peaked. Was really? Was the run of three albums of On the Corner, Live Evil, and at the Live at the Fillmore. Yeah. Because they were, like... 
they were a little bit less abstract musically than Bitches Brew was, and I feel like even more funky. Yeah, definitely. You know, with just and just like heavy, muddy, like wet yeah. funk. Yeah, and it was yeah. so good. Like I listened to On the Corner a lot. Wow, like, a lot. Because that's. Yeah. Man, that's a hard one for a lot of people to digest because it's so aggressive just in yeah. the group. Oh, it is. It's it aggressive, is. but the like the, the bass and drums are so repetitive, like it really anchors the yeah. entire album. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like I know a lot of uh, hip hop artists have like um, sampled musical ex- excerpts mm. from that specific album. So yeah, it's like it's fascinating how groundbreaking. Yeah. An album like that that came out in I believe seventy um, two, yeah. Which you know there there's a lot of experimentation going on in music even then, but that was yeah. miles just being <laughs> yeah. ahead of the curve and just going for it. Yeah, um, and I recently watched um, like so Miles Davis had a wife. He had many wives, but one of the wives was this woman Betty, who was then Betty Davis. <laughs> so she gets buried by the real, like, not the real, but, like, the more popular actress, Betty Davis. Okay. But um, he helped her career a whole bunch, and she did two albums that are, like, so funky it hurts. Like, right in there with him. But really? just like, what's going on? This is so funky. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did she play? Um, she didn't play anything. She just sang. Wow. Um... But she, I'll play you some of the music when we're done. Okay. Um, but yeah, she had an album called They Say I'm Different and one just called Betty Davis. Okay. And I was at a record store in Allentown and they had it, they had like a compilation of the two albums on like a single LP, like the best of each one. And on the cover, she's like in this crazy outfit. On a motorcycle. <laughs> and I, the record was, you know, it was a new record a couple of years ago. So it's like 30 bucks. And oh, so it was a reissue. Yeah, it was a reissue. Yeah. Wow, because, you know, you got to think a lot of the records from back then, unless yeah. they're really popular, I've, don't get reissued. Yeah, they were not. I mean, she's had a resurgence. Okay. But the original, the original records, which I was able to find, um, are like hen's teeth. But... <laughs> This thir- I had no clue who she was. I see this picture, this crazy chick, big afro, dressed crazy on this big motorcycle. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I need it. Yeah. <laughs> like, if she's making the music, or is at least in control of making the music, and Miles like was the producer wow. of her original recordings. So I'm sure you saw that and just jaw drop, like, all right. I didn't even know that at first. I just seen it. I was like, that's crazy. And when I got it home, and I put it on, and I started like reading the liner notes of the record, that's when it got into like her affiliation with Miles, and Davis is from Miles Davis. Yeah. All like the influence that he had to her career. And it's like said, like folklorically, that it was Betty that helped to push Miles in the direction of psychedelic and... and electric and like she was yeah. part of that shift yeah for him. yeah i mean she, you know she probably had an outside perspective of seeing noticing the trend in the wave like yeah. all right like you've been able to stay relevant this long in your mm. career you know let's maybe tweak it a little bit and start doing you know even more experimental yeah. music because like before she married miles she was hanging out with hendrix and oh, wow. like some other like 60s groups, mainly Hendrix. Yeah. And she was like a groupie for those guys. Mm-hmm. Then met Miles and then kind of almost like brought the two together. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. Um, so maybe that's how Miles knew Hendrix because for Bitches Brew, um, Miles wanted Jimi Hendrix to perform on the album. Mm. But for whatever reason, maybe scheduling conflict, maybe there was like a tour going on that Jimmy couldn't do. Maybe he was already booked up in his own studio. But originally, Miles Davis wanted Jimi Hendrix on wow. Bitches Brew, which would have been the magnitude of that album's popularity would have gone through the roof. Yeah. Like, imagine that. But, you know, it gave room from 
John McLaughlin to like hop on board and he was his performance on those albums was spectacular but I don't want to detract too far from what you're saying but it's just an oh, interesting no. like connection yeah and it could have that could have been the connection I didn't know that about yeah. Kendrick's yeah that would have been crazy <laughs> yeah this, go figure there's this other story that like um Jimi Hendrix was approached by Zappa and Zappa told him that um Frank Zappa wanted to score Jimi Hendrix guitar solos for an orchestra. Whoa. And Jimi was like, I don't want you to do that. Don't, that's, no. Yeah. And Zappa was like, and it, like, and Zappa was kind of a grudge holder. But, um, <laughs> but he, like, and he would like bring up an interview. He's like, I wish you would have did it. It would have been great. I wish yeah. you would have did it. But, so, but that would have been interesting. Because he scored Jimmy Page's guitar solo of um sub uh so my god subway stairway to heaven, to heaven. yeah <laughs> stairway to heaven i thought you were gonna say subway to heaven i, I almost did um so when did he did he do that in the 70s he did that in the 80s okay he his band which was like his last big band did a version of stairway to heaven wow. in which the oh was it all instrumental mostly Ike Willis does some vocals. Okay. Okay. But he does score the the guitar solo and played by a horn section, which is amazing. Like, it blows me away every time. Yeah, man. Yeah, that, yeah. That's another thing. I you should okay, play yeah. for me after this. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to comment on uh, how you're reading the liner notes of of that album. Mm-hmm. So I was actually. <laughs> Um, I was in the car today, and um, since I've been back home, I've been going back through all my old CDs, and you know, driving back and forth from Connecticut, have been playing a lot of CDs I haven't listened to in a while. Mm-hmm. And something that um, I loved when I first used to buy music was actually getting the CD or the album, and just especially if it's a reissue, just opening it up and like reading the booklet that comes with it, because it really yeah. gives you um, a really unique insight to um any band that you're listening to like for that period right and it's cool because you can see like oh who wrote the song who's on the tracks um you know like who produced it where mm-hmm. it was mastered and you know like that album you were speaking of found out miles davis produced it right. and then you know reading the, the inside history on that and then back to bitches brew i, I just remember the um, reading the booklet for the first time and just like seeing all these musicians I've never heard of, but that's how I got into them. You know, mm-hmm. like eventually started listening to Herbie Hancock, started right. listening to Dave Holland and just, you know, like that before internet was like a great way to get exposed to new music. Oh, but yeah, that's, that's the only comment I wanted to make on that. No, it's, it's, it's definitely true though. And I think that it enhances the like enhances the listening of yeah. the album, like knowing how it's made, the backstory of the artist, all that stuff. Yeah, because you know when you download a song, you don't get any of that. No, it's like who knows who who actually wrote the words, the instrumentation, mm-hmm. produced it. So and nowadays there are a lot of ghostwriters. Yeah, in music, so like there these men and women who will write a song get paid but not be given the credit you know and the credit's given to the person performing it Mm -hmm. you know and and then they get to not to be like grumpy like then (laughs) they get to like say like i wrote it yeah and i don't like i won't name names because i'm not totally sure who's doing it and who's not (laughs) so i don't want to like get anybody pissed off yeah you don't want to get an angry (laughs) email but um there are artists out there who are like singer songwriter but then there's like some folks in a room somewhere in an mm-hmm. office. Yeah. Very, you know. Well, that also goes back to, um, I believe it was 1960s New York City, Tin Pan Alley. Oh, yeah. You know, where they, there was like office buildings of people writing folk yeah. songs and just like and that essentially is, selling the songs to the artists. Right. And that existed like all of, I mean, think of all the jazz standards, you know, that survived from like the twenties up through the fifties, mm-hmm. stormy weather, all of me, you know, all these songs. Yeah, that were just written by dudes in suits, and then handed <laughs> to, you know, and then 
like what's his name? Um, well, Carol King and the guy who had seen Fire and Rain. <sighs> uh, you might have James, to look that one up. Okay. <laughs> he went on to a solo career, but he was a songwriter too. And they both, like Carol King, went on to be famous singing her own songs. Yeah. But she was writing songs for like Motown groups. <laughs> you know, she wrote Heat Wave for Martha and the Vandellas. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, and just, but there she was. Yeah. Um, oh, that dude's name is going to bug me because you know who he is, too. Hmm. James Taylor. Ah, uh, James. <laughs> of course. Yeah. He's was had one of those jobs writing songs. Really? He wrote he wrote songs for like that the Drifters did. Okay. And like other like this is like post duop early Motown. So, so even before he had his own actual career. Yeah, oh yeah. Like that was his foot in the door. Yeah. Wow. And he went solo. And Willie Nelson was the same thing a generation before. Okay. You know, he wrote the song Crazy that Patsy Cline made famous. Yeah. So he was songwriting because he was told he was too ugly. <laughs> well, he proved them wrong. He, he certainly did. <laughs> but, but, you know, James Taylor, Willie Nelson, like, they were still actual musicians. Yeah. So they can, like, write the melody and, like, actually write a good song. Right. And have it be a good song. Mm -hmm. Because I was... I was watching this video about, um, and I don't know the guy's name, but uh, th there's this one Swedish um, writer who has written like top 40, top 20, top 10 hits mm. for like Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Beyonce, um, Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, like any musician that's been in the top 40 the past two decades there's a good chance he wrote a song that got them mm. famous or, you know, or propelled their career even more. And, you know, this guy's like a multimillionaire. Right. You know, nobody knows his name, but he's figured out the formula for like the modern day pop song where he just knows what to write, how to write it. You know, he, he's probably recycled the same um, chord progression right. hundreds of times over maybe just like rearrange the chords or whatever mm. and yeah multi-millionaire has written more songs than you know you can count for all these artists and it's just it just blows me away yeah. it's like this guy nobody's ever heard of and you know he's written more top 10 hits than most musicians have like yeah. actual musicians right. the progression of music has been really interesting so to say because i think that's why i gravitate towards the 60s and 70s because mm -hmm. it's so close to like the roots of blues and jazz where you can just hear it in instrumentation like right that influence is there um yeah then you know like as the 80s evolved and became its own its own thing its own sound yeah. you know like it gets further and like you know each decade it gets further and further away from from that root and then right. you know not to dismay modern day music but it's definitely its own beast compared to yeah. what was going on 40 50 years ago yeah and there's there's a lot of factors for that probably yeah you know, as not only like the evolution of music but like more technology and just yeah yeah compression auto-tune mm -hmm. yeah a lot of things can go into making a record sound like good and clean yeah. When, you know, I definitely can appreciate that, but I definitely like the aspect of like live, like live in studio recordings, with like minimal overdubbing yeah. and just that raw, passionate sound. And like, think about the, the, the 20s when that's always how it was done. There was one microphone with a gigantic like <laughs> tube attached to it. Yeah. And you had like studio. The guys who were like would be doing the recordings, the engineers, would have to arrange bands. Like, like okay, like well, like for instance, like they they would put Louis Armstrong out in the hallway. He was such a strong <laughs> trumpeter. Yeah. Because like he would, if he was too close to the mic, he would overpower it. <laughs> so you had to like situate everyone. Like that was your levels. Yeah. It was like putting the drummer in the back and putting this the so just single track recording then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. With tape, so you know, you gotta um 
try to try to get the song down to one or two takes or right. uh, use an update. A lot of time they would just they would make a master seventy eight and burn it right from like it would record through this tube right into and just make it a record. Wow. Like right there. And then they would take that and then um, plate it. Okay. And then that would be the one that like the press that they would use. Man, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so like you had to get it right. Yeah, yeah. Because like studio time was expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's less accessible too because it's like, you know, how many studios were there? Right. You know. So like you, and most of these bands like basically would just take their road show and just bring it in and just do it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So there was less road of it. tested, tried and true. Right. It's like they already knew it. Exactly, like they've been playing these songs for years, so it yeah. was easy for them to just go in and go boop. There it is. Mm-hmm. But still, like how like there really were hardly any chances for second takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And two music from that era, even a couple <laughs> decades before that, you know, going back to um, the jazz standards you're talking about. Right. Like all the blue standards, you know, all the folk standards, yeah. all the bluegrass traditional standard tunes. Those have been songs that have been played, you know, for 50, sometimes 100 years. Mm-hmm. Like coming from like Appalachia, then before that, like Scotland, Europe. Yeah. So it's just interesting. It's like tracing back all these old songs and the original writer, the original people that played it, you know, it's just kind of like... um. Just like a word of mouth, you know, teach someone a song, oh, yeah. now they know it, then, you know, it just goes down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, recorded music, it's definitely plays a huge role in just society and culture in general. Yeah, and like, there were artists of the 20s, mainly jazz and blues artists, who didn't want to record. Country musicians, too. But they didn't want to record. They're like, this is stupid. Why do I want to do this? Like, <laughs> yeah. They, they wouldn't make as much money as they would playing live. Yeah. And they, especially the black musicians, really didn't trust it. Because, like, here comes two white guys in a suit. Mm-hmm. You, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. And maybe they'd have, like, the one patsy, like, <laughs> black guy just to make everybody comfortable. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there was, like, constantly, like, there was a big distrust amongst musicians. Rightfully so, you know, it's like, it's it's your art, you don't want someone coming right. out who has a business degree trying to tell you exactly. what to do and how to do it. Because, yeah. so like, and then we could, we'll just move on, but like, <laughs> Bessie Smith was singing, you know, for a long time, but she didn't make her recordings until fairly late in life, or at least the popular recordings. Yeah. Very late in life. And it was like, like Columbia that finally like, you know, coerced her into it. Wow. And by that point, amongst musicians, she was legendary. So, she had, like, talk about, like, if Hendrix would have played on Miles Davis's record. Bessie Smith had, like, Louis Armstrong backing her, Benny Goodman backing wow. her. Like, the, the, big the, names. the biggest musicians of that day were, like, pushing each other out of the way to be <laughs> able to back Bessie Smith. Yeah. Which is, like, a pretty cool story and, like, Imagine being there for that. Like, yeah, right. Who's who of musicians. Yeah, and not even kn- knowing that like you're witnessing like that history. It's just, right. It's just what's happening. Yeah. So, like <clears throat> one thing I want to, in the line of further, kind of just talk about with you and see how you remember it, was, um. so we, that first run we went on, mm-hmm. of, or I should say the first run I went on with you guys, was Herkimer, New York, Oxford, Maine for the Nativa Festival. Yeah. Where I first seen George Clinton live, which planted a seed in me. Forget about yeah, it. Yeah, that was <clears throat> that was a smoking show. Yeah, that was really July. That was yeah. Then we were supposed to go. Was it Vermont or New Hampshire? So the next show after that was Vermont, <clears throat> but the the town, I think it was like Shelby, Vermont. The town had to cancel the show because they didn't have the the infrastructure to support such a live. I mean, su- su- such a large event happening. Right. So, like, a week before the show, they had to cancel it. <clears throat> and then they rescheduled it for the for the Sherman Theater in right. Shadsburg, Pennsylvania, of all places. Of all places. So, it's right in my backyard. Yeah. And it was like an invasion. Yeah. <laughs> really, like, there, you know, there, the Sherman probably wasn't big enough. 
No, they, they had no idea what was about to hit they the town. They had no clue. Yeah, Main like, Street was damn near shut down. Yeah, it was like the weatherman who like really undersells a hurricane. Yeah, yeah, projects like, oh, 10% chance of rain, and <laughs> right. it's like raining for a week. Because <laughs> right. it was just overrun. Like There was nothing anybody could do. For one night, Strasbourg just belonged to the fans of Further. Yeah. <clears throat> And, and all that, the fans that I couldn't get into the show. Yeah. <laughs> all and the people were, just hanging out. Which were a lot of them. Yeah. Probably in the thousands because <clears throat> that was a pretty, um, like, old, that tour, they were mainly in the Northeast. And so they were hitting towns that were, like, very close to each other. So there were a lot of people doing the whole tour. Yeah. But they get from Maine down to... Stradsburg was about an eight-hour drive. Yeah. But there was definitely a lot of people that just kind of pit-stopped there even if they didn't have a ticket to get in but that was that was incredible because that was probably one of the smallest venues they had played yeah. as a band and didn't because it was hot that night it was humid in the venue and didn't the the, the paint i was just gonna the yeah. paint was coming off of the floor and was stuck to my shoes <laughs> i'm sure other people too yeah yeah, yeah that was and just sweaty sweaty people yeah. Bumping into me. <laughs> I got hit in the face by a guy dancing to Fire on the Mountain. Yeah. And he was all like just doped up. And he's doing the whole fire and his hands are up in the air. Yeah. Wiggling his fingers. And he keeps like spinning. And I was a very stoic concert watcher. Yeah. And I remember that. He just kept like spinning and hitting me. <laughs> and but his eyes were closed. He's like really into it. I mean, I don't want to get mad at this guy. Like, he's enjoying himself. He yeah. doesn't even know what he's doing. But he keeps hitting me, so I'm going to move. And that's the show I met Bob Weir at, too. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> kicking myself because I remember I was hanging out with you. And you, like, wanted to go in, in the alley. I was like, oh, I'm going to go up front. Like, you know, we'll just shoot me a text before you go in. And lo and behold, yeah. you meet the Bob Weir. Which was a total accident, like... I had no business being in that alley. Because <laughs> there was nobody there. Yeah. Like, I It was just the, the throngs of people trying to get out the main way. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to go out the side door and be cool. And I just ended up in a place where I, people weren't supposed to be. Yeah. And it was just these two brawny dudes. And Bob Weir <laughs> just walking. So that was cool. Yeah. that was That's probably been the best show to, in my opinion, to hit. The Sherman Theater. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. I still, like, have a soft spot for Herkimer. Yeah. Because, like, that... The the Gelston Castle. Yeah. The whole... That whole thing. It's a castle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, then that night, we didn't have, um... Remember, we were supposed to link up with my cousin yeah. at their campsite, but it's, like, rural... Yeah, upstate was, New York. It was closed or something. No, you know, we yeah. all had flip phones. It was, like, 2009. Right. Or 2010, but anyway, like we didn't, we had directions how to get there, but we couldn't. We couldn't find it. Yeah. Can you pause this? Oh yeah, yeah. So, all this music we took in back then, so all started with, with the fact that you and I both played together, and you stuck with music, been through a couple of different bands. What's going on with your band now? So we're called Serious in the Sky, and that's a S-I-R-I-U-S. And yeah, I joined the band back in March, and um, it consists of two guitarists, a lead guitar, and then a rhythm guitarist who goes back and forth between acoustic and electric guitars, a uh, saxophone player, uh, bassist, myself on drums, and um, female vocalist. And as far as genres go, <clears throat> I feel like it, it could be put in the category of um, like a little R&B, a little soul, some influences of funk, a uh, so, little bit of blues, a little bit of jazz, a uh, couple straightforward like 70s classic rock songs. So, you know, I just feel like a modern day band is kind of grabbing all sorts of different influences of mm -hmm people that have, you know, bands that have, uh, that we look up to for inspiration. So do you guys have like a projected time when, um, you want to be able to play shows and have your EP ready? 
So we're going to take advantage of a uh, of the winter months and so right now we have one song that's um been fully recorded and mastered uh before we all um we all got together one last time before the before the the Christmas break and all that and we um we pretty much have all the tracks done for another one of our songs Amarillo Flower that one should be ready and like fully mixed within like the next couple weeks. Mm-hmm. At least having a solid four or five tunes ready to go, you know, by the end of the winter time, just okay. like everything mixed and mastered and online. And then by then we're going to have, um, you know, like have start trying to have um, shows lined up for the spring. And then once summertime hits, that's when we're going to, really want to be just trying to play as much as we can because you know that's really because nowadays you don't can't really make money off of record sales yeah so it's really just all about the the live performance and your presence and professionality and all that yeah so i feel like we covered just about everything (laughs) yeah cool yeah awesome i'm glad we got a chance to talk about your band and so like people, if do you have an online presence as of right now? So yeah, we just have a Facebook, Serious in the Sky. Okay. And yeah, if you look it up, it should be easy enough to find. We have a couple songs on Bandcamp from, <laughs> I don't know if anyone uses Bandcamp anymore, <laughs> but we have a, a couple tunes from like a few months ago that we had put up. But, um, but yeah, keep an eye out on Bandcamp and YouTube and um, Spotify. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. All right. Well, yeah, absolute pleasure. And yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely, Dave. It was fun talking. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Plaid Shivers Podcast. You can find this episode and more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, the podcast app, SoundCloud, and on YouTube with video content to go along with it. I'm going to be doing my own art and other people's art as the backgrounds for videos coming up in the future. If you want to see more of my work, you can go on Instagram at Albert Shivers. If you are on Facebook, you can go to Albert Shivers Visual Artist Facebook page. And don't forget to like and subscribe.